0: It was my first win in Europe. I've been improving and training and racing hard here for four years now and noticing the improvement every year, getting closer and closer. And uh, yeah, to finally be able to finish enough, having everything line up properly was like very nice.
1: Welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast, I'm Matthew Pierrot. You just heard from Pierre-André Côté. He was speaking about an important win at the Grand Prix Cricket Lyon, which ran last month. Côté races for human-powered health. He's now in his fourth year with the Pro Team, which is based in the US. Its race schedule has been bringing Côté to Europe pretty consistently since 2019. Côté is from Gaspé, and he grew up in Lévis near Quebec City. His current home is Girona, which makes for a solid European base. In this episode, Côté and I discuss connections between hockey and cycling, and the nature of risk in bike racing. He knows a thing or two about financial risk, he's studying to be an actuary, he definitely has a numerical, analytical mind yet he balances that with a certain wisdom that goes beyond number crunching. I really appreciated his discussion about power meters and his relationship with them and his training. He has some insights that many of us who are training with power should think about. But first, we start with Criquillion. That name might be familiar to you if you know your Canadian cycling history going back to 1988. Coté and I don't discuss that other Créquillon Canada connection, but I'll tell you more at the end of the episode. Now, here's my chat with Pierre André Coté. Pierre André Coté, recently you won the Grand Prix Créquillon. It is a one day stage race in Belgium. What did you know about that race beforehand?
0: I guess we didn't know much about it. We were actually informed by uh Andric, our new director this year with a ton of experience in Belgium that it was named after Claude Criquillo, a really successful bike racer in Belgium.
1: And what did you know of the uh the course before getting there?
0: It was a very interesting course actually, a little bit like a Kermesse, just 13 or 15, yeah, around 15k laps, I think, maybe 20, but pretty short laps that you do a few times. I think it was eight laps, nine laps. Uh with some tiny roads, with some climbs, a little bit of cobbles, a little bit for everyone, basically, a little bit of fun for any type of rider. So uh suggesting a very open race with uh with only us as a Pro Conti team in there, so probably not a controlled race. So we were all pretty excited to go racing, actually.
1: And was this a target for you? Did you like mark that one on your calendar or did you just show up open, open to race?
0: The latter, yeah. <laughs> we, we showed up pretty open to race. Uh, it's great to mix in some point twos uh, in, the, in our calendar with the point ones and point pros. It's great to just go back to being the team under pressure and feel like you're controlling the race, you know? Because let's be honest, when we're doing races like here in Brussels, current, it's more like, trying to be opportunistic and punch above your weight and not really be the team that will be under pressure and try to control the race, right? So it kind of got me back to my roots of racing in Quebec and Tour de Beau, Saguenay, trying to figure out how to win the race from the front and really be aggressive. And also like, yeah, deal with the pressure of being the team that everyone's watching. So it was quite refreshing, actually.
1: Was there any time during the race where you felt, maybe you or the team felt that, oh, maybe things aren't looking good or we aren't controlling as well as we should?
0: Honestly, it went very well. So the original plan was to basically be in every single group that went up the road. We were on a reduced quad because a bunch of guys are sick. And then we had uh, some guys crash in in the previous races. It was only five of us. Uh, One of the guys, Gage Etch, uh, was sick, but did like an amazing job too. So with only four and a half guys to start with, let's be honest, we really didn't want to be in a position that we had to ride. So the best way to not be in that position was to basically be in every single move that went up the road. But uh, when you're the team that's going to be watched by everyone, then once human-powered health was in a breakaway, then everybody felt like that breakaway would go to the line. So everyone wanted to be in that breakaway. So it created a scenario where it took over two hours for the breakaway to go. But that was super nice. Like Honestly, there was literally not a single situation, I think, that we were not in control. We, the guy, did an amazing job. We were protecting Zook. But Colin, August, Gage and I, we just took turns and basically covered everything until my move went. Um, somewhat serious move went just before mine with Colin and Gage. We were golden, like two guys out of eight, but then it got shot down a lap later. And then I went in a group of six and uh, stayed there for a little while. And then, uh, yeah, so like we were under control for that whole first part of the race.
1: So, uh, you mentioned Zouk, Nicholas Zukowski. He's your, your teammate. He was the protected rider, but, um, and he finished fourth, but what happened in the final shuffle there? Um, because I think both you and he were in that final move or close to that final move.
0: Yeah, exactly. So once I made it to the breakaway, uh, it was not really like a early breakaway situation anymore. Cause we were like halfway through the race It was more like, a. Race finish threatening kind of move. Just we went racing and we went hard, so we were never given more than 50 seconds to a minute. We just started racing basically for the finish earlier on. And I think with three laps to go, two laps to go, like 50k to go, a group of 20 bridged to us, which the guys followed, which was perfect. We had basically August, Nicola, and uh, Colin in that group. Then we got out of this group with a group of six. And we were three of us human powered out in that group with Zook and Colin, so we had three out of six. Those were like perfect odds, and yeah. So since we had been protecting Zook, we knew we had the winning card in there for sure. Colin and I rode pretty hard. Zook obviously rolled the breakaway as well. You can't just sit on. And then we eventually dropped another guy from the breakaway, so we went to three out of five. Colin wasn't feeling perfect so he did the most work in the breakaway making sure that we won the battle against the peloton because we were pretty confident about our ability to beat the other guys in the breakaway so at that point it was more about staying away than figuring out how to beat the other guys from that move and then it was a game just Sook and I basically attacking one after the other to try and crack the others in the breakaway and I think he fell short a little bit at the end the finish wasn't like Perfectly suited to attack. Zook ended up attacking in like a false slide downhill. The guys could benefit from the draft a lot, right? From the nature of a false flat downhill, you can easily shelter. So yeah, Zook lacked a little bit of power there because you know it's at the end of the race, and yeah, it was easy to follow on a false flat downhill. But then, think a guy from Minerva attacked, uh, maybe a K from the line, and then Zook did a perfect job, just keeping me within st- striking distance. Uh, he trusted my sprint, and then I just had to finish it off, and that was it.
1: You've won races before. You won stages of the Grand Prix Cycliste de Saguenay, as well as Beauce, and the National Critérium Championship race in 2017. You did mention that the the style of racing here at the Grand Prix Croix reminded you a bit of racing in in these North American events, um, especially on a team as strong as Human Powered Health. But what does this win Um, Or how does this win compare with your other wins that you've had at a a, a pro level?
0: I think it's still a big step forward, to be honest. Firstly, because it's a one-day race. I've won a bunch of stages and stage races, but this one was like a one-day race. So you win the day, but you win the race, basically. And then it's in Europe. It was my first win in Europe. I've won, uh, I think, yeah, five times at a UCI level. Back in North America, but yeah, this one was very like the first one in Europe. I've been improving and training and racing hard here for four years now and noticing the improvement every year, getting closer and closer. And uh, yeah, to finally be able to finish enough, having everything line up properly was like very nice.
1: Now, unfortunately, you got sick soon afterwards. Illness seems to be going through the ranks of the pro peloton this spring. It always seems riders seem a bit more susceptible to catching bugs because they tax their bodies in training and racing, which lowers their defenses against colds and flus and other illnesses. But uh, tell me more about that challenge that you and your fellow riders face this spring.
0: Yeah, there, there does seem to be a little bit more uh, problem with illnesses and injuries this year. I think it could be two factors. Like, I'm not a doctor, but I feel like a little bit of it could be because... A bunch of us pro riders ended up getting COVID at some point, And maybe like the immune systems are a little bit on the back foot still from that. So you go back to racing because obviously you want to race your bike, you like, you do all the protocol, five, 10 days off. But then, yeah, maybe you're still a little tired. Your immune system is maybe a little vulnerable. And then I think the other element is that we've been wearing masks and using a lot of hand sanitizer and everything for the last two years. Which is a great thing, but now that most measures and protection is going away, then maybe, yeah, our immune system, it's kind of a shock for us to go back to normal life uh, and not having to face any virus in the last two years, basically. So I think that might be both elements that could, like, yeah, that could end up having a lot of riders sick this time.
1: You're one of only a few Canadian riders to go pro while still under 23. You joined Rally UHC Cycling for the 2019 season. You're still with that team, which is now called Human Powered Health. It's a UCI pro team. Your teammate, Nicholas Zukowski, who we've, who we've mentioned, went pro before the age of 23 as well. And Rafael Paracella is doing his first full season with b and Hotels KTM. You three are all notable because it's pretty rare for Canadian riders to get to that level so early. In your case, what happened to get you to the pro continental level or the pro team level as it's now known?
0: I think I had great teams taking care of me and giving me opportunities. And I also had good timing with how things uh, ended up playing. So I think. Silver Pro Cycling, which was a great program with Gord Fraser and Scott McFarlane, uh, giving us a great platform to one develop ourselves and then get opportunities to perform. Uh, I was two years on the team. The first year was uh, a lot about learning about myself and out the race in North America, the bigger races, Tour of Utah, Colorado, and then they really started trusting in myself, and then. Yeah, I got a lot of chances in the sprint in the second year and ended up like winning two stages of both. And that's how uh, Rally at the time noticed me and decided to sign me, my first pro contract, four years ago. Basically, I'm on my fourth year with the team, now called Human Powered Elf. So I think, yeah, getting these good rides with Silver Pro Cycling, getting the good the good opportunities and just trusting, trusting us and uh, really taking the time to teach us how to race bikes uh, really allowed me to be noticed by rally and then make my way through the steam. And now I've been racing in Europe for four years and getting better every year.
1: It's fortunate that Silver was around at that time in in your development. I guess recently we now have the the project um, Premier Tech U23, which was definitely for developing riders. How critical is is that period for for a rider in his or her development
0: i think it's super critical like uh i mean these are the years where you're allowed to learn i feel like the younger you learn and you get the opportunities to learn you're not going to be on the back foot for the next year racing in north america was great but it took me a few years to adapt to the racing over here i went from being pretty successful in the U.S. to getting dropped most of the days here in Europe, to be honest, on the first year I was with the team here, and I was happy to get a two-year contract because it gave me a little more time to learn, but to be honest, like the race weren't easy the first two years, and only at the end of my second year did I start to like, be at the front of the bike races towards the end. And then the next year, I started being more competitive and fighting for results. And this year now, like I just won a race. I'm super happy. And I'm finally getting to that point where I feel like I'm in control and I can do work and try to seize my opportunities at the end of the races. But yeah, like I said, the first two years, it's just a shock. And you have to relearn so much, so many new things that, yeah, having the opportunities these guys have, being u 23 and being able to be exposed to that many races in Europe, I think it's going to be great for their development.
1: You mentioned how like, you've changed as a rider, especially going from the North American scene to the European scene. Um, and you've done that all with human-powered health. How has the team changed in that time? I ask because this team has been around for a while. It's, it's a solid outfit. In a world where uh, cycling teams can come and go and fall apart, this one is, seems rock solid. But I'm sure you've seen it evolve as it uh, has really solidified itself as a uh, pro-conti team or um, a pro team.
0: Yeah, it's just a great program that's been going on for years. And it's just small steps, you know, like keep improving in basically every areas of the sport, Uh, logistic, preparation, staff, directors, nutrition. Everything's been improving constantly over the last few years and now we're really starting to notice changes and especially their effects on our results like we've had a lot of stage wins last year and we're trying to keep up the momentum this year but yeah I mean directors and riders all moving to Europe to be there most of the time so that's like I think one of the biggest change to be honest the first few years we were traveling a lot which in that moment felt great. It's easier, let's, let's put it that way, to just be home more often. But then every time you do the travel over the Atlantic, well, you're going to lose two to three days of training on one end. Then you come back, it's another two, three days. So if every time you do the travel, you lose a week of training, you do four or five of these during the racing season, then that's five weeks of training that you just missed. That's 10% of the year, right? So that's a lot. So I think that's been a huge improvement. And then just the staff, we've been like hiring a new staff or keeping the ones that were very competent. So I think like we just built that family that's super reliable. And yeah, we're just really well surrounded.
1: You mentioned being based in Europe. You yourself uh, have a European base in Girona and it's, it's pretty new for you. Tell me about locating and basing yourself in Girona.
0: I moved in Girona for the second part of last year. I used to be in Nice and then decided to go back to Girona. For the service course being here, actually, it's just so convenient. Uh, it's small details, but just when something breaks on your bike or you need pieces of equipment parts, uh, it's much easier than getting stuff shipped and then having to wait a few days, like or having to wait in a bike shop trying to get your bike sorted out. Maybe like during the pandemic, it could take weeks. So I had to order stuff from the service course and trying to fix it my own way. So yeah, just being over here great riding and a lot of people to ride with a lot of the guys from the team are are here now so yeah being in Drona is really good and really having a second home here in Europe I think is a game changer to be honest it has a lot of value um like if any of the younger riders who wants to make it as professionals in Europe are listening I think it does have a lot of value to really have a second home over here You want to be excited about going home in between the races. You don't want it to feel like a burden. Sometimes it's a little more expensive to get a nice place, but honestly, it needs to be your safe place and a place you're looking forward to going back in between the races because you're supposed to rest and enjoy your time. And it's small details. Just I had my girlfriend over here staying with me for the last three months, and uh, now she's gone because she has her own objectives on the track. She's a track cyclist, Lily. So she's back in Milton, uh trying to prep for the world cup but uh yeah like when she left i just realized that i've been here for three months and i literally feel like i left a day ago like i'm not homesick at all so it was really game changer from past year where after three four five months you're starting to feel homesick you're excited to go back for nationals and then keeps your head a little bit off what's important the, the preparation for your bike races so Yeah, small details like that that just makes you happier and makes you really excited to go back home between the races, I think is really important.
1: You mentioned a service course. I almost feel, because it's Girona, I have to clarify. You mean service course like the logistics center for your team, not the... uh the uh sort of what is it a cafe a bike shop <laughs> that's also is it?
0: yeah yeah no exactly it's exactly yeah or <laughs> or logistic center yeah exactly with the mechanics and all the bike parts
1: <laughs> right there is that famous other famous service course there do you which also though speaks to the um the bike culture in Girona you must uh, run into tons of cyclists all the time
0: yes and some people don't like that about Girona I think uh some yeah some Americans from the team that they, they don't like running into people they know every single second you want to go to the grocery store and kind of switch off from cycling but to be honest for me it hasn't been an issue i think i'm fairly new to the sport and i don't know that many people so like i'll be running across really good cyclists but i don't i won't even recognize them so it's not an issue for me honestly uh, so, yeah, it's not been an issue for me, but I can understand that some people, yeah, being constantly reminded that you're surrounded by pros who are also trying to make it can be, can be a little annoying.
1: I want to go back to your early uh, roots in cycling, actually before cycling. You, like many Canadian kids, you grew up playing hockey. And not surprisingly, there are other Canadian riders who started out on the rink. Is there anything about hockey that helps to build good cyclists or is the hockey and cycling connection just from the athleticism that um, these kids might have? And it's maybe transferable between the sports.
0: I would say the athleticism for sure. Uh, Maybe like some anaerobic power from, from the, from the hockey ring. I think, yeah. When I started cycling, I was really good anaerobically probably because the The hockey player as I was. But yeah, I think what interested me the most in hockey is what got me into cycling, like the preparation and being fit. I don't think I was a good hockey player. I think I was a good athlete and I could play hockey, but I didn't have the hockey sense and like the raw talent that it takes to be a great hockey player. I was just a good skater, a good shooter. Like I had all the attributes. I was a good athlete but I wasn't a great hockey player, you know? So, and that got me into cycling because all that preparation you do, eating well, recovering, training, be a good athlete, then I feel like you get rewarded more from it in a sport like cycling than a sport like hockey, where there's so much like hockey sense and talent to it.
1: I wanna talk about another facet. You are studying to be an actuary at the University of Laval. How is it being a full time? bike racer and a student how do you balance all that stuff
0: it's definitely not always easy but as you mentioned it it brings great balance it's been getting tougher and tougher because i'm over here in europe more and more and the program isn't really made to be followed remotely Uh, a lot of classes are supposed to be in presence but now i'm like a little in too deep like i've got i think 70 out of 990 credits, like, I'm really, like, really close to finishing. So I'm not thinking about stopping, like, if I was really early in the stages of the program, maybe I would think about doing something else that's easier to do remotely, because that's been the, like, major hiccup is, like, having classes that you're supposed to be there. And, like, I understand that what I'm asking is pretty complicated, because I'm not supposed to study at Université Laval and be away all the time. But the program and the head of the program has been really great trying to make things easier for me. So yeah, it brings great balance to my life, I think, because there's always something else to rely on. So when cycling is not going my way, then I can throw myself into school and then that's going great. And when school is not going my way, then I can throw myself into cycling and it's going pretty well. So, you know, like, especially like I had COVID earlier this week, uh, this year and I had 10 days off. And honestly, you can easily get into a pretty dark place if you have 10 days off just thinking about, oh, you're not reaching your objectives and not doing what you should be doing, like all the prep to reach those objectives. And if you have basically nothing else to do, like you have COVID, you're not supposed to go out there exercise, you're literally just recovering. And it can be quite a while. But then for me, it was almost like a blessing in disguise because I was quite overwhelmed with school at the time. It was the midterms and I was like, wow, I've got 10 days to get rid of all the study I have to do. And then I'll be able to go to the races and not stress about it anymore. So what was a very, could have been a very negative experience while well, school allowed me to turn it into somewhat something positive. So, yeah, I think it's a great example of like how it brings a good balance in my life.
1: An actuary studies in, and manages risk in financial situation. There's risk in cycling, especially, I think, in a sprint. Also, you have to gauge, say, the risk of letting a rider go up the road or to chase that rider down. Tell me about your relationship with risk.
0: You know, that's quite funny because... Well, I'll, I'll I'll start with numbers to be honest cuz like an actuary plays a lot with numbers and I like relying on being natural on the bike and your feeling. So that's like a big difference. I think like I'm really number oriented when I'm off the bike with all the statistics and the actuarial stuff, but then on the bike, of course, like I'm using power meter and analyzing all the data, but I also like want to rely on how you feel. And as far as risk goes, yeah, The guys think I'm pretty funny sometimes when I start babbling about all the risk and what are the, what is the likeliness of this scenario to happen or the other scenario. But I think, yeah, when you're on the bike, maybe I don't quite realize it that I'm computing all these risks, but it just feels natural. You know, you, you know, like the patterns and everything and you try to rely on other people's experience as well. That's why you have the directors. So yeah, I don't, I don't think I like recall any time that I really like used any statistical knowledge to analyze uh, any situation, but I think yeah, I probably have like a mind that's oriented towards that, so I don't realize it, but I'm using it more than I think, I'm sure.
1: What's the riskiest move you've made in a race? Now, I don't it doesn't necessarily have to be dangerous, but like where where it was a calculated risk.
0: Um, it's hard to single out on one move, but As you said, like, it's calculated, it's going to be a great, like, uh, risk-reward ratio, you know? Um, And I actually have trouble to take risk earlier in the race, like, to get in the breakaway and stuff like that. When you really have to be in the breakaway, then it's a little easier. But then, yeah, the first 100k of a race, when you're saving energy and everyone's trying to be chill, trying to eat and everything, I tend to have a little more trouble to defend my position and take the risk needed to save that energy but then once you start sniffing the finish line and you get close and it actually matters then for sure you start to take a lot more risk and i think yeah i i can't narrow it down to like one situation but i would say that when i do take the most risk is when there's either like a very hard section that you know you can't come back from like my example would be parry tours 50k to go you get into a dirt section and then it's 18 dirt sections in the next 40k and like it's one after the other so if you're not in position for the first one there's not going to be a reshuffle it's just going to go like people are going to get spat out the back from that point but you're not going to move up anymore so basically you get to that 50k mark point with 50k to go and you either get to the front or you're not in the race anymore so of course like your willingness to take risk gets a lot a lot uh, higher, basically, because if you're not taking these risks, and if you're not at the front, then your race is over anyway. So it's, yeah, it's a little more rewarding, for sure. So you're taking more risk. I find
1: it interesting that you say you, you like to sort of ride by feel or ride by intuition, which, to be honest, once I found out that you were, you know, studying math and statistics or using those in your, in your studies, I was like, oh, this must be a numbers guy. He must be like watching his power data and his head unit. But um, do, you, you, do you kind of, you know, let the screen go dark on your head unit when you're out riding?
0: No, no, no. I do look at it. But it's also like you have to adapt because as a pro, you're going to ride multiple bikes with multiple different power meters. And they're, they're great. They're great tools, but they're accurate in relation to themselves, right? So from one power meter to another, you might have 2%. So if one of your parameters two percent high and then one of them is two percent low, a four percent spread when you know yourself as much as we do is a very big spread. It's the difference between being on a great day where you're flying, and on a day where you think you might be getting sick. So at some point you gotta kind of feel how you're feeling. Uh, it could be easy to like just bang yourself your end. Your your head against the wall thinking that the numbers are not what they should be but it could also be just your parameter doing weird stuff on that day so like yeah in the last year I've been working a lot on just doing my efforts that my coach is asking me to do and if the power meter is saying 20 40 watts lower than what I should be doing I'm not going to go back home and just throw the training away because I could be wasting a great day that's just influenced by the power meter's reading right so just going to go all out for whatever effort or not all out, like the intensity that I'm supposed to do and whatever it says, and it says it, and then we can assess. But if I feel good and the the numbers are just low, then I'm not going to like stop riding and wonder what the problem is, right? So yeah, I think you've got to find the balance between analyzing post-ride and using these numbers, but also not go crazy while you're on the bike.
1: Is there any technical element in cycling that you're working on right now? Like maybe something in your sprint or maybe it's your, your time trial position? Is there any technique that you're trying to improve upon?
0: Last year, I started working on my time trial again, to be honest. Uh, as a junior, I was a very good time trialist. And then when I got on silver, we had a bunch of very good time trialists. So there wasn't a lot of space in that area. And I turned more into a sprinter. So all the time that I would take to do the time trial uh, trainings turn into motor pacing and sprint. And uh, last year, I tried to become more of a complete rider and worked on my TT, got some good results. And this year, I haven't done any TT yet, but uh, my prep is going to start soon for nationals because that is going to be an objective of mine. So just, yeah, trying to get into the tech, the position, uh, and obviously just spend a lot of time on the bike to get used to that position and get comfortable into it. So that's probably going to be the focus, yeah, for the next couple of months before Nationals.
1: You mentioned Nationals, uh, but what else is next for you in the season ahead?
0: To be honest, it's quite unclear. So I, I don't have much to say about it. Like I can say what I'm immediately going to do. Like I'm going to go to uh, Giro de Sicilia and then Tour of Greece. But then, yeah, afterwards, I like, except from Nationals then, like, We have a rough plan, but who's going where is not yet decided.
1: Is it so open because just that's the nature of racing nowadays? Because of the past two years of the pandemic, things are just always in flux?
0: Yeah, a little bit. And, uh, you know, as a pro-conti team, you're always kind of uh, waiting on races, race invites and everything. So not everything is set in stone, like ahead a lot. And uh, yeah, with all the illnesses and everything you end up like spending a lot of time making plans and then you have to change everything so yeah we have a rough idea of what i'm supposed like i'm probably gonna do but still like i could be i could be racing swiss before nationals which seems unlikely to me but it could happen also like so (laughs) yeah in the last two years we we've got to adapt but it's great because you get like a lot of racing days and i'm not like a grand tour rider who's going to train for four months and not race and just like prep massively for that one event. Like I'm more of a, an opportunistic rider. So I just want to get like a lot of shot at it. And I'm just going to race aggressively and try to make out of mo- the most out of like every single race day, basically, no matter what the race is.
1: Well, I hope those opportunities uh, present themselves this year, wherever they may be, whether more races in Europe or maybe back in North America. But um, Pierre-André, thank you very much for, for speaking with me today.
0: Well, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure.
1: And that's the interview. If you're a sharp-eared listener, you will have noticed in the interview that Coté said he was planning to do the Giro di Sicilia. But that race is on right now. This interview was recorded almost a week before the Giro. And what's cool is that Côté had a really strong performance in the first stage, finishing
0: eighth. At
1: the start of this episode, I mentioned that there is a Cricillion-slash-Canadian connection. In 1988, Maurizio Fondriest... Claude Criquillion and Steve Bauer from Fenwick, Ontario, came to the closing meters of the World Championship Road Race. Bauer launched a sprint. Criquillion tried to come between Bauer and the barriers. Criquillion crashed. Fondriest won. Bauer crossed the line in second, but was disqualified for actions deliberately unsportsmanlike and dangerous, according to the judges. The debate still continues about who was at fault. Some say Bauer was reckless, sticking out his elbow, causing Crickillion to crash. Others say Crickillion hit Bauer first, and the Canadian's elbow came out so he could maintain his balance. After the race, police had to guard Bauer's home in Belgium he had received threats from supporters of Creckelion. Creckelion later sued Bauer for assault and $1.5 million in damages. Roughly three and a half years after the race, a judge did not rule in favor of the Belgian rider. Claude Creckelion won his national championship road race in 1990, the Tour of Flanders in 1987, and the World Championships in 1984. He died February 18, 2015. The race that Pierre-André Côté won in March, the Grand Prix Criculéon, was first run in 1995 in honour of the Belgian racer. This episode of the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast was written and edited by me, Matthew Pioro. I had help from web editors Matt Hansen and Terry McCall. It is produced by Adam Killick. He composed the music, too. Thanks to Ontario Creates for its support. And thank you for listening. Please rate and review the show, ride safely, and I'll talk to you later.